Okay, uh, good evening, brothers and sisters, and welcome to another episode of the Bible History Project. Uh, we're so happy to be here and so happy to share the Word of God to all of you this evening. But before we go ahead and proceed, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Almighty Yahuwah, everlasting yes. Father in heaven, gracious be unto you, O God, yes. because you always watch over your people. Yes. Thank you for listening to our prayers, yes. giving us peace and protection. Yes. We ask, Father, that you please remember your people all over the world, yes. including our friends and loved ones. Yes. Whatever their religion may be, whoever they may be, yes. may you please protect them, especially from the pandemic that plagues the entire planet. Amen. Please, Father, be with us in our Bible study tonight. Yes, As we study your holy words, we ask and beg you to please send your Holy Spirit, yes. not only to comfort and strengthen us, yes. but also to guide our thoughts and our hearts, that, Father, we can be led to you and remain by your side. Our Lord Yahusha, we worship you as well. Yes, May you stand beside your servants tonight. Yes, increase our faith and be with us at all times. Mm -hmm. We believe, Father, that you have listened to our prayers. Yes, we ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you so much for attending our Bible study for this evening. Tonight, we're going to talk about judgments. Remember, last week we came from studying all about the ten commandments of God. And so tonight we basically continue with some of the laws that God has given his people. So let's begin Exodus 21 and the verses one. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. And so the Lord God has given the people of Israel, not only the 10 commandments or the Decalogue, but also what are called here judgments now what does that mean these laws or better judgment which means mispatim are given as presidents to guide israel civil magistrates in the cases of civil dispute because remember we're dealing with millions of people and when you're going to deal with millions of people there's going to be conflict and someone has to make a decision to settle that conflict and to reconcile the people of God. And this duty or responsibility is to be given to what are called judges. The judges will not act haphazardly. Rather, they will follow principles set out by God himself. These are called judgments. And so they will be a guide to make decisions concerning the people of Israel when they have conflict with one another. Now, there are several guidelines that are called judgments or ordinances of the Father, and they cover different topics. Today, we'll talk about Hebrew servants. Now, when you read this part of the Holy Bible, some of you might think that the Bible condones slavery. This is why people sometimes refer to the Bible as the book that started slavery. However, this is not true. In fact, if you carefully read what is recorded in the book of Exodus chapter 21, you will find that the Bible is actually responsible, not for the establishment, but for the elimination of slavery. You see, in ancient times, slaves were taken by force. They were kidnapped. They were taken by force. If one country defeats another country, the people there become slaves by force. They had no choice 
whatsoever. However, when it comes to the biblical description and the principles outlined concerning what but ancients called slavery, it was completely different. As a matter of fact, the Bible's description of what ancients called slavery is really indentured servitude. In other words, it's more like an employer-employee relationship, and they determined law codes or codes of law that govern this relationship between employer and employee or master and serve it. Now, during the days of Israel, if one wanted to become a servant, it was by choice. It was not by force. And why would anyone want to become a servant? Well, there are four ways, basically, that a Hebrew might become a slave to another Hebrew. What are they? Number one, in extreme poverty. Maybe this person doesn't have anything to eat. And he wants to take care of his family. And so basically will sell his rights. He will work for an individual or for a family that can pay and afford what he needs in life. Number two, father might sell a daughter as a servant into a home with the intention that she would eventually marry into that family. Now when it says a father will sell a daughter, of course, it's by cooperation. The father no doubt talked to the daughter because they're in such poverty and perhaps they're looking into getting married into a more uh, better off family, then they can opt for, for this decision. Number three, in the case of bankruptcy, a man might become a servant to his creditors. And number four, if a thief did something wrong and he has to pay restitution, if he or she cannot afford it, then the option is to become a slave or a servant. Remember, ancient slaves during the time of the people of Israel had zero rights, and so they were treated like animals. But the Bible, what it did was to establish rights for servants. And so we will look at these rights that the Bible establishes. Exodus 21, 2 down to 3. Now, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. Want to pause there for a while? It says if you buy a Hebrew servant. It means there is a servant who's telling everyone, I want to be hired as a servant. It's like if you go to Fiverr or Upwork or you go to Google and you look for services provided, you will see a list of people who wants to be a servant. If you go to Home Depot, for example, there are people there lined up awaiting to be uh, hired by you. And so if, when it says if you buy a Hebrew servant, these are people who want to work, who want to give their life in servitude in exchange for financial goods. Now it says here, but in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, he is to go with him. Now what does that mean? Without paying anything. You see, sometimes uh, he, uh, a person becomes a slave because he has a lot of debt. And so he works for year one, year two, year three, sometimes all the way to six years. But even after six years of labor, he or she still cannot pay his or her debt. Bible says he no longer has to pay. On the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. That's pretty good. You know, a lot of these laws that we read concerning slaves or servants 
it has a bias really in favor of the slaves, in favor of the servants. And so if he comes alone, he goes free alone. But if he has a wife, when he comes, she is to go with him. However, if the master gives him a wife, what are the rules? Verse four, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free until the woman and her children are able to pay whatever debts they have incurred. In that case, it can all be free. And so when we look at the biblical laws concerning a servitude, we see that uh, God's judgments actually show it has abolished slavery and substituted for it is a covenanted labor. These laws actually sparked a great moral movement. Now, what if, and sometimes this happens, a Hebrew slave works for a master and the master or the Hebrew slave actually loves the master. And so what can he request? Exodus 21, five to six, but if the servant declares, I love my master, my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl, ouch, right? Then he will be his servant for life. This is what, what you call a bond servant. And so in some situations, even though they can be free, this servant chooses to remain with his master. What's his motivation? Not because he has debts, not because he has a feeling of obligation, but because he loves his master. He wants to be with his master. So much so, even though he knows the rules concerning bond servants, what is that rule? They have to go to the judges. The judges determine whether or not this is applicable. And what do they do? Bible says they will pierce his ear with an awl. That would be the sign of servitude. He will be a bondservant for life. Now, what happens when a father decides to sell his daughter as a servant? Exodus chapter 21 and the verses 7. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as men servants do. Now, you might be thinking, a father selling his daughter as a servant, like what we told you during the days of Israel, there were days of poverty for some families. It's like when you in the Philippines, right? Third world country. There's a, there are families who are in dire need and they're deep in poverty. And sometimes they want to make living arrangements so that your daughter can marry into the family of someone who's well-to-do, right? And so you, the Bible gives the opportunity uh, to do just that. And so they sell the daughter. Of course, they cooperate. I'm sure if the daughter doesn't want that, then it doesn't have to be. But because of dire situations, sometimes it goes down to this. And so the man sells the daughter as a servant with the intention that the daughter is going to marry the master. Okay. However, sometimes it doesn't work out that way because maybe the daughter is not really living up to standards. Maybe the daughter is what you call a gossip. And the man who bought her doesn't really like her qualities. Maybe she is lazy. 
maybe she's too talkative, right? And so go on and on and on. And so what is a master to do when he is stuck with a female servant that he is not inclined to marry because of the display of behavior during the time of her servitude? Well, let's read the book of Exodus 21 verse 8. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. And so what he needs to do, he can get someone else to redeem her. And she has no right to sell her to foreigners. Okay. Now, what if uh, someone decides to purchase or to buy a servant, a daughter, for the purpose of marrying his son? Okay. Sometimes that happens. This is what it says in Exodus 21, 9 to 11. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. That's pretty good, right? If, he, if the son marries another woman, because he doesn't really like the one that the father purchased for him, if he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. And so we can see here, it's fair, right? We can see that the principles of fairness applies when it comes to servitude. Unlike the slavery conditions of the ancient people of the world. This is why when you look at these laws, what we see is that the Bible actually abolishes slavery practices and in replacement, it has established rules and regulations that continue to preserve the sanctity of human life. Now, there are also laws about violent acts, right? This is something important because people can be violent sometimes. Is this true? Yeah. I mean, it's true today. It was true a long, long time ago. And so what are some of the laws and ordinances concerning violent acts? Exodus 21 and the verses 12 Whoever hits someone and kills him, what happens? He is to be put to death. However, there are two kinds of slayings. What's the first kind? Exodus 21, 13. But if it was an accident and he did not mean to kill him, he can escape to a place which I will choose for you, and there he will be saved. Let's say... There was, it was a fight, and, and one killed another person, and it was by accident. It was not done on purpose. So what does God say? Well, God says this person should escape to a place that he chooses. Why will he need to escape to a place that he chooses? Because he may not be safe where he's at. Why? Maybe the relatives of the one who died, they might go after him, right? And so he needs a place of safety. And so what did God establish that he chose for himself as a place where people who are in danger of death can run to for safety? In the book of, Exodus, in the book of Numbers 35 verse 6, let's go jump a little bit because God has already chosen these places. Six of the towns we give the Levites will be cities of refuge. That's what they're called. Okay, God selects cities of refuge. And where a person who has accidentally killed someone can flee for safety. In addition, give them 42 other towns. 
And so the Bible establishes what are called cities of refuge. So if you are someone who accidentally killed another person, and because of that, people are angry at you, and so you're in danger, God has appointed these places of refuge. If you go there, you're not allowed to kill that person or touch that person. It is a place of refuge. However, if you killed someone and it was premeditated, different story. Exodus 21 verse 14, but when someone gets angry and deliberately kills someone else, he is to be put to death, even if he has run to my altar for safety. And so even if he goes to these cities of refuge that has been established by God, if he deliberately kills someone, that person is to be put to death, and he cannot go to these cities of refuge. Now, this is called capital punishment, right? And so the Bible does condone capital punishment. And who, in particular, are guilty of being put to, uh, who are guilty so that they are to be put to death? In the book of Exodus 21, 15 down to 17, this is what it says. Whoever hits his father or his mother is to be put to death. 16. Whoever kidnaps someone, either to sell him or to keep him as a slave, is to be put to death. Number 17, whoever curses his father or his mother is to be put to death. Now, when we look at these commands of the father, we know it applies to adults because a young child cannot kidnap someone else, right? It's really more applicable to adults. And so if an adult hits his father or his mother, he is to be put to death. If an adult kidnaps someone, he is to be put to death. If an adult curses father or mother or becomes a threat to his father or mother, he is to be put to death. And so God is providing clear boundaries concerning the relationship between a child and his Parents, you see that? God is protecting the parents. This is why Lord Yahusha himself refers to these passages of Scripture. Now, it also applies to younger kids or minors. However, the Bible also protects minors because sometimes, perhaps, a parent in his or her anger, they might use and abuse this authority. And so what happens when, for example, a son or a daughter, a minor, is accused of a crime, is accused of being disrespectful. What happens? The book of Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 19, suppose a man has a stubborn, rebellious son who will not obey his father or mother, even though they disciplined, they discipline him. In such a case, the father and mother must take the son to the elders, the judges, as they hold court at the town gate. And so if there's a stubborn and rebellious son, what typically happens is the parents bring the child to the, uh, the council, the council of elders, council of judges, and they hold court and they determine the proper punishment. It, it rarely leads to capital punishment. That's a rare moment when the elders will say, okay, this son, this daughter has to be put to death. It happens, but it's rare. Oftentimes, a son or daughter is held accountable and they will have to be um, punished accordingly, okay? Now, if there's a fight that goes out, and 
someone else gets hurt. What are the laws concerning that? Exodus 21, verse 18, yet there's a fight. And someone hits someone else with a stone or with a fist. It's like you're in a bad place, the wrong place at the wrong time, right? But does not kill him, he is not to be punished. If the one who was hit has to stay in bed, but later is able to get up and walk outside with the help of a cane, the one who hit him is to pay for his lost time and take care of him until he gets well. Makes sense, right? I mean, if you got into a fight, you accidentally hit someone with your fist, and this person gets hurt, you're going to pay for the damages. And so the hospital bills, you're going to pay. Whatever is needed to help this person recover, you're going to have to cover the cost. Okay. Now, suppose two men are fighting and you accidentally hit a pregnant woman. What are the rules there? Now, suppose two men are fighting in the process. They accidentally strike a pregnant woman. So she gives birth prematurely. If no further injury results, the man who struck the woman must pay the amount of compensation the woman's husband demands and the judges approve. And so this is but fair, right? However, if there is further injury, what are the rules concerning that? 23 to 25. But if there is further injury, the punishment must match the injury, a life for a life, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot, a burn for a burn, a wound for a wound, a bruise for a bruise. This is the law of fairness and justice. However, and this is what we're we were talking about earlier, when you look at the laws that God has given here, it seems to be biased towards the servant. The slave. Why? Take a look at this. Exodus 21, 26, 27. If a man hits a manservant, okay, or a maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of a manservant or a maidservant, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the tooth. Wow. Right? I mean, if I was a, main, uh, um, a male servant, I'd probably provoke my master to hit me. <laughs> Just hit me right here. <laughs> Knock out my tooth, and I'm free for life. Right? And so we can see here that even the slaves are protected. This was uncalled for in, in ancient slavery. The, slaver, the slaves had no right whatsoever. They were like animals. And so they can be killed by the slave owners but not with the Hebrew slaves because they were not really called slaves. They were called servants and God protected them with rights that we find here codified in the book of Exodus chapter 21. Now, what if the owner has a pit bull? Because sometimes pit bulls can do a lot of damage against humans, right? Have you ever seen that? Have you ever walked around your neighborhood and you see a person walking alongside you on the sidewalk and he has a pit bull, what are you going to do? Probably walk across the other sidewalk, right? You don't want to come across like a, a pit bull. Why? Because they're very dangerous, especially if the owner doesn't have a leash. This is why we have leash laws, especially if you're walking your dog and that dog is a pit bull, right? So back then, I don't know if they had pit bulls, but you know what they had that can be dangerous to humans? Bulls. 
bulls or oxen. This is why the Bible even has rules about people who own bulls. And this is what it says in Exodus 21, 28. If a bull gores a man, means if, if a bull charges to a man and kills him, if a bull gores a man or a woman to death, the bull must be stoned to death. And its meat must not be eaten, but the owner of the bull will not be held responsible. Okay? That's the law. However, if the owner of the bull knows that the bull has a habit of doing this to people, what are the laws against that? What are the laws concerning that? Verse 29, if however, the bull has had the habit of goring and the owner has been warned but has not kept it penned up and it kills a man or a woman, the bull must be stoned to death and the owner also must be put to death. This is why they have to be careful, right? However, there's an escape clause there in that law. Yeah. There's a way for the owner to be free to escape death. What is that? 21 verse 30. However, the dead person's relatives may accept payment to accept for the loss of life. The owner of the ox or the bull may redeem his life by paying whatever is demanded. Okay? And this law applies also to who? In 31 to 32, this law also applies if the bull, the bull gores a son or daughter or to minors. If the bull gores a male or female slave, the owner, in that case, must pay uh, uh, 30 shekels of silver to the master of the slave. And the bull must be stoned. And so God's laws are meant to protect the people. God's laws are meant to be fair and just. And what if, for example, um, there was the danger of a person getting hurt in your property? This happens, this is even applicable during our time, right? It's kind of weird because if somebody goes to your property and slips and falls, he can sue you, right? And during the days of Israel, even the people of Israel needed these laws. Why? In Exodus 21, 33 to 34, suppose someone digs or covers a pit and fails to cover it, and then an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit must pay full compensation to the owner of the animal. But then he gets to keep the dead animal. <laughs> what is he going to do with the dead animal? I don't know. Maybe eat it. I don't think he's going to eat it. But he gets to keep the dead animal. Okay? Well, what if... Uh, Someone's ox injures a neighbor's ox, or a bull injures a neighbor's bull. What happens next? 35. Someone's ox injures a neighbor's ox, and the injured ox dies. Then the two owners must sell the live ox and divide the price equally between them. They must also divide the dead animal, which is fair, right? And so these are the rules that God has given the people of Israel. And what do we see? What do we notice about these rules and these laws? Well, we can see that the Bible has something definitive to say about slavery. What are they? Number one, the Bible is responsible actually for the elimination of slavery, not its establishment. Remember, during the days of Moses, the surrounding nations, the people before them, they were into slavery. And when it comes to slavery, these slave owners they had absolute control over their slaves. They were treated like animals. 
and they can kill their slaves. But God changed all that with these laws that God gave to the people of Israel. Number two, biblical laws acted to repress slavery, to confine it within very narrow bounds, and ultimately to put an end to it. This is why people who accuse Christians or Jews that the Bible condones slavery, they have not really read the book of Exodus chapter 21. Because when you read the book of Exodus 21, it teaches that the Bible, that the Bible eliminates slavery. Number three, the biblical laws reveal the importance of respecting the rights and dignity of servants. Number four, the biblical laws reveal that servitude was chosen or mutually arranged. It was like employment. This is why there were labor laws, quote-unquote, that was issued by God himself. Number five, the biblical laws reveal that servitude was of limited duration. Number six, the biblical laws reveal that servitude was highly regulated, just like how we have highly regulated laws and regulations set up for, for people who work for someone else, labor codes, right? And so the Bible teaches us that it values human life and that human dignity and human rights are important to God. Why? Because God himself said, I have made man in my image, right? And so God values human life and human dignity. But there's something that uh, caught my eye. I don't know if it caught your eye. When we read the book of Exodus 21, there's something, a verse that's kind of stood out that we want to know more about. Because we're finished with Exodus 21. But before we conclude, there's something that kind of stands out. What, what was that? In the book of Exodus 21, 5 to 6, but if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. And so this, this slave, he can be set free. But he chooses because he loves his master to remain a servant for life. So much so, he receives the piercing of his ear. And so he becomes a bond servant. Does that sound familiar? Do you want to be a servant of some master? If we were to ask you, do you want to be a bond servant of a master? Who would that be? Who would be a master that we can say it's an honor, a privilege to be his bondservant for life, who would that be? I think Yahusha. But you know what? This is what Yahusha HaMashiach said to us. You know what he said? John 15, 15. This is Yahusha talking to his disciples. No longer do I call you what? Servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. You know, it's an honor and privilege to be a bondservant of Yahushua the Messiah, right? But Yahushua says, no, no longer do I call you a servant. I call you a friend. Why? Because everything the father has told me, I have revealed to you. And so we're friends. <laughs> Yahushua says we're friends. 
But you know, the apostles, they still considered themselves to be bondservants of Yahushua HaMashiach. What's the proof? Look at the apostle Paul, Romans 1.1. What did he say? Paul, a bondservant of Yahushua. He did not merely say Paul, a friend of Yahushua. For him, it was an honor to be a bondservant of Yahushua the Christ. How about James? What does he say? James 1.1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Yahushua the Christ. He did not simply say a friend of God, friend of Yahushua. He said bondservant of God and Yahushua. Yes, we are God's friend. Yes, we are friends of Yahushua. But it is our honor, our privilege to be a bondservant of Yahushua, our Lord. How about Peter? Simon Peter. What does he say? Same thing. Look at this. 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. Simon Peter. What does he say? A bond servant, an apostle of Yahushua the Christ. So Peter was also a bond servant. How about Jude? Jude 1.1. 1, 1. Jude, a bond servant of Yahushua the Christ and brother of James. He too claims that he is a bond servant. Why? It's an honor and privilege to be a bond servant of Yahushua. And these followers of Yahushua, why are they so bold in claiming to be bondservants of Yahushua, the Mashiach? You know why? Because Yahushua himself was a bondservant. Philippians 2, 6-7, who, although he existed in the form of God, because he was perfect in holiness and love, Yet he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of men. Is the son of God, Yahushua HaMashiach. Yet he took the form of a bond servant because for him it was an honor, a great honor to be a bond servant of the Father. This is why as followers of Yahushua HaMashiach, Yes, Yahushua calls us his friends. God calls us his sons and daughters. But we're proud and happy to be the bondservant of Yahushua HaMashiach, to be a bondservant of our almighty God, Yahuwah. But if we truly consider ourselves to be bondservants, if that is how we feel, brothers and sisters, then we need to receive that piercing in our ears, Right? Was Apostle Paul pierced in his ears when he said, I am the bondservant of Yahushua HaMashiach? Oh, yeah. Galatians chapter 6, verse 17. From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things. For I bear on my body the scars, the scars that show I belong to Yahushua. What was the ear, the, the uh, pierced ear of Apostle Paul? What form did it take? Scars. Scars on his body. That is the proof that he is a bond servant of Yahushua, that he belongs to Yahushua HaMashiach. He might not have the scars, but there's something else that can serve as scars that prove that we are bond servants of Yahushua HaMashiach. What, is, what, are, what are they? The book of 1 Peter 4, 12 to 14. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
you know, we should not be surprised when we suffer because of Yahusha and because of his name. If ever we're persecuted, if ever we're, su we're suffering, it's because we're participating in the suffering of the Christ. You know what that means? That's your piercing. That's your ear pierce. It means we are bondservants of who? Yahusha. You cannot be called a bondservant unless you have the scars to prove it. And these scars oftentimes take the form of suffering and insults and persecution. And so if ever we're persecuted and insulted because of our beliefs, because we believe in the name of Yahusha, if we are insulted because we follow Yahusha HaMashiach, we should rejoice. Why? Because that's the proof we belong to Yahusha HaMashiach. We are bond servants of Yahusha who calls us his friends. And that's a great blessing to be in that position. And that is what we have as members of the church of Yahusha HaMashiach. Okay, that's our lesson. But before we go ahead and conclude, let's go to our mailbox. And we have two questions for today. The first question that we have is someone texted or emailed me, forgot. I have a sister here listening to the Bible studies. You know, we're thankful to our <coughs> brothers and sisters who are sharing our Bible studies with those, you know, with different kinds of people, even those who are still in uh, INC. And she was questioning why we use God culture, okay, God culture, and other, I guess, other references. Why weren't we the ones who know this first? And this was in reference to the name of the Father, the name of God. Remember when we proclaimed that Yahuwah is our God? Right? And when we proclaim Yahuwah is our God, we were criticized because they say we were not the first ones to discover that the name of the Father is Yahuwah. Remember that? And so the question is, if, if this is really of God, then why weren't you the first ones to know this? Why did you have to use other, other people's research, like the God culture, do this? We, yeah, we use the God culture, but it wasn't just the God culture. We use many, many references. We use many, many sources. But the bottom line is we decided that Yahuwah is the name of our Almighty God. Is that wrong? Think about it. Is it wrong to declare something to be true, to believe in something to be true, because the one to discover it first was someone else? What do you think? Is that wrong? No, nothing wrong with that. See, what's important is if it is true or not, right? If it is true, it doesn't matter who first discovered it. Because if you're going to say, I don't believe this is true because someone else discovered it, then you're not interested in the truth. If you're interested in the truth, you will examine everything. And after examining everything, you conclude, is this true? And you use the Holy Bible as your source, right? Test everything. I mean... What is the proof that even though somebody else discovered something that we believe in now, it's still the truth? Well, let's go ahead and take a look at this biblical passage in the book of Revelation 6, 12 to 13. I looked when he opened the sixth seal and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black, a sackcloth of hair and the moon became like blood. And the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. How many here know this passage? I can't wait to ask my daughter. <laughs> Do you still remember this passage? 
my sweet Jenna. No? <laughs> How many here are familiar with this passage of scripture? Yeah, Brent, you still remember this one? I think you do, yeah, because we just finished the Bible studies, right? And so these are the events of the sixth seal. This is in the Bible. Was this preached by the Sugo or the last messenger, Brother Felix Waimanalo? Yes. And how many here remember how this was explained or taught by Brother Felix Manalo? How was Revelation 6, 6, 12 to 13 fulfilled as explained by Brother Felix Y. Manalo? For example, the great earthquake. What did he say was the fulfillment? He said the great earthquake was fulfilled November 1, 1755 in the Lisbon earthquake. Do I believe this? Yes. Does Brother Felix Wamanalo believe this? Yes. He taught it. He taught it to us. But was Brother Felix Wamanalo the original preaching of this event? No. You know where it came from? Let's look at this uh, passage. This is from a book. Science of the Times, an expositor of prophecy, which was published, look at the date, October 11, 1843. It was the author, Ellen G. White. So in Ellen G. White, on October 11, 1843, before the Sugo, right? Before the Sugo, he said that the great earthquake in Lisbon on November 1st, 1755, was the fulfillment of the great earthquake in Revelation chapter 6, 12 down to 13. And so, according to uh, that reference, it was not original from Brother Felix Y. Manalo. Well, how about the darkening of the sun? According to Cafelix Manalo, uh, how was that fulfilled? May 19, 1780, New England, the dark day. Do we believe this? Yeah. Did Brother Felix Manolo teach it? Yeah. But was it originally his? No. Who was the first one to discover this? Again, let's look at uh, uh, another reference regarding the dark day of 1780. Ellen White stated 25 years later appeared the next sign mentioned in the prophecy. She added May 19, 1780 stands in history as the dark day in reference to Revelation chapter 6 and the verses 12. And so what we have here is the first two events, the great earthquake, the darkening of the sun, which took place respectively November 1, 1755 and May 19, 1780. They were originally taught by Ellen G. White. Well, how about the third one, the third event, the stars of heaven falling. According to Brother Felix Y. Manalo, how was this fulfilled? November 13, 1833, when there was a meteor shower. Do we believe this to be true? Oh, yeah. Did Brother Felix Manalo believe this to be true? Yeah, that's why he preached it. But who was the original preacher of this event? And let's go take a look. Meteor shower, November 13, 1833, who endorsed it, Ellen White. And the Millerites, they were the first ones to preach that November 13, 1833, that uh, that was the fulfillment of the falling of the stars in Revelation chapter 6, 12 down to 13. So these three events in Revelation chapter 6, which we believe and receive from the last messenger, which we believe to be true, it was originally taught 
discovered, not by Brother Felix Swaminalo, but someone else, right? What's her name again? Ellen G. White. Who was Ellen G. White? Who was that? Well, we know she's female, right? Ellen G. White was an author, and she was the founder of the Adventist Church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. When was she born? 1827. When did she die? 1915. Way before. What a Felix Y. Manalo, right? And so, does it mean Brother Felix Manalo embraced all of the teachings of Ellen G. White? No. What did she take from her teachings? That which was true. You see that? Why is it true? It's true because it's true. It came from the Bible. It's not true because it was taught by Ellen G. White. It's not true because it was taught by Brother Felix Manalo. It is true because the Bible reveals it to be true. Do you get the, the point there? What else? Let's take a look at this. In the book of Revelation 13, verse 18, here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. How many here have received this lesson from the Sugo? How many here remember, right? We know who the beast is, and we know what the number is, because this was taught by Brother Felix Y. Manala. As a matter of fact, it has also been taught even during our time by the INC, for example. Here's a Tamang Daan episode, right? You have Brother Bobby Fernandez, Brother Michael Sandoval, and this was on the Iglesia Ni Cristo Ngayon uh, channel, March 21st, 2019. You see that? Right? And so they had an episode of Tamang Daan, and it's about Vicaribs or Vicarius Filidei. Tamang Daan, Revelation 13, 18. Okay? And when you watch this episode, they will discuss with you the following calculation. Vicaribs Philly Day, which means biker of the son of God, which supposedly is the title on the tiara worn by the Pope, right? And so when you look at how the different uh, letters correspond to numbers in the Roman numeral system, and you add it all up, Vicarus 112, Philly 53, Day 501, and if you add up 112 plus 53 plus 501, what do you get? Six. Six, six. When this was taught to us, did we believe it? Yeah. Why? Because it's the truth. It was revealed by the Bible. We looked at the other biblical evidences. And we came to the conclusion, this must be true. However, was it original from the Sugo? No. Take a look at this. What do you see there? Vicarives, Philly, Day. We add up Vicarius or Vicarius, 112, Philly, 53, day 501, total of 666. Is it the same? Yeah. You know who taught that? That's in lesson number nine of the Seventh-day Adventist. Well, you might say, well, maybe the Seventh-day Adventist copied the Sugo. Would that be true? Well, let's find out when was this published. This was published back in 1914, before Brother Felix Huamanado preached it about Vicaris Philidae. As a matter of fact, when was this first published? This is a 1884 uh, manuscript, The United States in the Light of Prophecy, written by Uriah Smith, 
right? It's a self, it's a, the Seventh-day Adventist Publishing Association. 1884, look what it says. The Pope was upon his uh, pontifical crown, and it mentions the title, Vicaribs, Vicarius Pili, D, and it mentions 666. And so this teaching that the, pap the papacy's title, meaning Vicarius Philidae, or Vicar of the Son of God, which has the number corresponding to 666, it was not original with the Sugo, who was the originator, the Seventh-day Adventist. Does it mean it's no longer true because somebody else stumbled upon that truth? No. It doesn't matter who, who is the first one to preach it. What matters is, is it true or not? Right? Is it true or not? What else? What is a signature INC doctrine that we all believe in? We all believe in. You know what it is? John 840. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. Who's the one speaking there? Who's the one speaking? Yahusha the Christ, our Lord Yahusha. What did he say? He said he is a man. Not only did he say he's a man, he proved that he is distinct from God. Because so many people today, Protestants and Catholics alike, they believe that Yahusha the Christ is also God. But here Yahusha says he's a man, which I heard from God. And so he shows to his followers that he's distinct from God. He is, I'm a man, which I heard from God. He's not God, but one who hears from God. And his nature is man, right? This is one of our signature beliefs. As a matter of fact, because of this belief, we get persecuted a lot, right? However, was this original with Brother Felix Y. Manala? Take a look at this uh, from the Christadelphian website. It says, Jesus is a man, not God. And this is what they say. I highlighted it for you. It says, Christ is a man. Yes, he's the son of God, but certainly not God himself. Jesus always very clearly pointed out his subservience to God. And if you look at the bottom paragraph, Jesus is currently in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, Luke 22, 69, Acts 7, 55, 56, a separate position in God himself. He is serving as our mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5, and high priest, Hebrews 5.10. Two roles which make no sense at all if Jesus is God. In the near future, Jesus will return to, to earth, set up the worldwide kingdom over which he will reign. And so here, the Christadelphian belief is that Jesus is a man in the state of being and is not God and is subservient to who? God. Isn't that what we also believe? Was this preached by Brother Felix Fabinala? Yeah. Did we believe it? Yes. But who was the one who preached that before him? John Thomas, the founder of the Christadelphians. And when did he find the Christadelphian movement? Or when did uh, John Thomas was here on earth in 1805? And he founded the Christadelphian movement back in 1848. Way before, Brother Felix, why? Manalo. So who preached it first? Right? So does that mean it's no longer true? It's still true. Why? Because what matters is not who taught it first. What matters is if it's true. You see the difference? And so if it is true, then we have to accept and believe the truthfulness of that, despite the fact of, despite who preached it and taught it first. And there's something else we need to understand. 
You see, the English and Tagalog Bibles used by Brother Felix Faymanau, that was the result of the work of Catholic and Protestant biblical scholars. Brother Felix Faymanau did not take the Hebrew manuscripts and bring the Bible together. No, he was relying on the scholarly work of English and Tagalog Bible scholars. And so they're instruments, right? Ellen G. White, an instrument. John Thomas, an instrument. These scholars, instruments. And so Brother Felix Waimanalo believed in what they revealed, right? And because it was not originally his, it doesn't mean it's no longer true. It's still true. Because if it's true, it doesn't matter who started to preach it. We need to believe it because it is true. And so why do we believe that the name of Yahuwah is our God? Because it's true. But why do we know it's true? How can we know the truth about God and the truth about our worship of God? Let's read the book of Corinthians 2, 10 to 11. God has revealed those things to us by His Spirit. The Spirit search, searches everything, especially the deep things of God. After all, who knows everything about a person except that person's own spirit? In the same way, no one has known everything about God except God's spirit. So how can we know the truth about God when we have the spirit of God? If we don't have the spirit of God, we will not know the truth about God. Did we receive the spirit of God? Yeah. Wait a minute. Did Brother Felix Famelo receive the spirit of God? Yeah. So if we receive the Spirit of God, how will we know the truth about God? Does that mean God will speak to us in a thunderous voice from heaven? How does this work out? Let's keep reading. Uh, verse 12. Now, we didn't receive the Spirit that belongs to the world. Instead, we received the Spirit who comes from God so that we could know the things which God has freely given us. And I want you to take a look at that last part. You see... There are pieces of knowledge that God wants to freely give us. However, that those pieces of knowledge, God does not give all at once, right? You notice that? There's like progressive revelation. This part is revealed first, and then this, and then this, and then this. You notice that? God reveals what he wants us to receive freely, but does it according to his terms. This is why if God is going to reveal something through his spirit, it will be according to his will. Well, how will God reveal that to us today? By means of his spirit. Corinthians 2 verse 13. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. How can we understand and believe the truth about God through the spirit that he has promised to give us. The Bible says when we use the methodology concerning how we are to receive the teaching. What is that? We compare spiritual things with spiritual. In other words, we compare what is written with other passages which have already been written. You see, when you look at the Bible, who wrote that? God did right? Through the Holy Spirit. And so those are spiritual things. And so what is our duty? If we have the Spirit of God, we compare what's written with something else that's written and see whether or not there are contradictions. And so, for example, there's a truth that was taught by Ellen G. White. What do we do? We look at the Scripture. We compare it with the Scripture. 
What do other passages in the scripture say about the topic? And so when we compare spiritual things with spiritual things, what happens? We're able to discern the truth. We're able to know the truth. This is what was done by Brother Felix Y. Manolo. This is what he taught us to do. And this is what we do even today. And so what does that mean? What are we to do? Because nowadays we live in the, the, the age of the internet. Knowledge is available all over, right? You go to Google, you press a keyword, you press enter, you have millions of hits. And so what is our responsibility if we have the Spirit of God? Let's read what it says in verse 14. A person who isn't spiritual doesn't accept the teachings of God's Spirit. He thinks they're nonsense. He can't understand them because a person must be spiritual to evaluate them. And so what are we to do? Whenever we receive the Spirit and we receive new information about topics concerning our worship of God, we test them. We evaluate them, right? We see whether or not it compares to spiritual things. We test things out. This is why Paul says in Thessalonians 5, 19, 22, don't put out the Spirit's fire. Don't despise what God has revealed. Instead, test everything. Hold on to what is good. Keep away from every kind of evil. And this is what we did, especially with the name of Yahuwah, right? We looked at the other names, Yahweh, Yehovah, Yah Yahuwah. We looked at the other names and we tested it because that's what you have to do. Apostle Paul says, test, test out what God has revealed. See and compare it with scripture so that we let the scripture interpret itself. That's the way of the spirit. And this is also what God wants us to do as believers. Apostle Paul, in fact, criticized some of the members of the church. And I think some of us are guilty of this as well. What is it? In Hebrews 5, 11, 14, there's much more we would like to say about this, but it is difficult to explain, especially since you are spiritually dull and don't seem to listen. Ouch! <laughs> I don't know how the early Christians felt about that. You're spiritually dull. Why did Apostle Paul say that? You have been believers so long. Now that you ought to be teaching others, instead you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's word. We're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. For someone who lives on milk is still an infant and doesn't know how to do what is right. Solid food is for those who are mature, who through training have the skill to recognize the difference between right hand and wrong. Apostle Paul criticizes those who are spiritually dull. What does that mean? It means they're still infants when it comes to spiritual maturity. What does it mean that they're still infants? They still cannot recognize the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And that's very dangerous. You know why? Because people can take advantage of you. If you just accept whoever's teaching in the pulpit, whatever they say, you don't test. Whatever they preach, you don't compare with what the Bible actually teaches. You know what? You're going to end up believing even things that will jeopardize your faith. You become a blind follower. Apostle Paul doesn't want us to be spiritually dull. He wants us to train ourselves. He wants us to grow in our knowledge of God's word by means of his spirit. And this is why we need to continue to grow. This is why when we wanted to find out the name of God, we know God wants us to know that. Why? Because it's in his word. It's in the Bible. 
But of course, why do we believe? Why do we believe that the name of God is Yahuwah? Why? Because we tested it. We evaluated the scriptures. And how did we test that? How did we use the biblical test? First, we use the biblical alphabet test, right? Because the Bible is written in what language originally? Hebrew. And so we look at the Paleo-Hebrew alphabet. And this is what we find out. Vowels in Masoretic Hebrew scripture are a combination of the historically long vowels. The A, the Wow, and the Yod. The Masoretic or uh, Tiberian vowel points. Vowels are long or short in quality and quantity. The He, the Wow, and the Yod became known as the Matres Lecciones or Mothers of Reading as they assisted in reading scripture. The individual letter used as a vowel was known as a meter. Wow served as a vowel and was pronounced as long O or U. Whereas Yod as a vowel and was pronounced as long E. Or you see there as I. And A served as a, a final long ah, right? Which is why in ancient Hebrew, which is what is applicable when we want to know the ancient name of the father, the tetragrammaton, in ancient Hebrew, there were only three vowels. The A, the U, and the I. There was no E or O vowels. And so there's no Yehovah, there's no Yahweh. It was A, U, E. What else do we know? We need to know. It says in the, in the Jesenius Hebrew grammar, the original vowels in Hebrew, understood, not written, as in the other Semitic tongues, are A, I, U. Again, it says the same thing. The vowels E and O always arise from an obscuring or a contraction of these three pure sounds. Therefore, since the name YHWH, which is, what do we call that? The Tetragrammaton is the most ancient of all names. It seems unlikely that it would contain either the vowel sounds E or O. And so we cross out Yehovah or Yahweh. What's left? Yahuwah. Doesn't it make sense? And so when we apply the biblical alphabet test, we come to the pronunciation using the biblical alphabet, the Paleo-Hebrew alphabet. Yahuwah is the name of the Father. And so we apply the biblical alphabet test. We also apply the biblical meaning of the name test. Where can we find the meaning of the name? In Exodus 3, 14 and 15, God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Yahovah, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name for ever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And so this is the name test, the biblical name test, because the meaning of Yahuwah is I am who I am. And when you look at I am who I am, when you look at the name of Yahuwah, it's composed of two roots. Haya and Hawa. And what do those two roots mean? I am and I am. But there's a slight variation when you, comp when you compare Hawa with Haya. With Hawa, the word actually also may include breathing. And so it is God who is the uncaused one, I am, who causes all things with his breath, who created all things, right? And so there's a middle word, middle part, and in Strong's, the Hebrew word H-U means the same as Asher, which we find in I am who I am in Hebrew. And so you have I am, Haya, 
and then who, and then hawa, I am, I am, in the middle is who. You get I am who I am, haya, who, hawa. You drop the prefix, the ha, the H, yeah? the hawa. You drop the prefix and you get yahoo, wa. And so when we look at the biblical name test, it passes it. It passes the biblical meaning of the name Yahuwah. What else? We also apply the biblical names test. And this is very interesting. This is what really overwhelming when it comes to biblical evidence. There's more biblical evidence for the name Yahuwah than any other variant name. For example, Yehovah or Yahweh. You don't have any biblical evidence. You don't have any biblical evidence for those names. However, there's tons of evidence for the name Yahuwah. What's the proof? Well, in number six, Yahuwah says, said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, Yahuwah bless you and keep you. Yahuwah make his face shine upon you and be glorious to you. Yahuwah turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Not only did Yahuwah God give his name to Moses, he gave his name on the names of God's people. God says, they will put my name on the Israelites. This is why Daniel said in 919, O Yahuwah, hear. O Yahuwah, forgive. O Yahuwah, listen and take action for your own sake. Of my, oh my God, do not delay because your city, your people are called by your name. And so the people of God are called by his name. This is why when you look at the names of God's prophets and God's people, there's Yahuwah all over the place. That's the essential core name of God, Yahoo. And it's in the names of so many prophets, so many people of God. You cannot deny it. It's not Yeho. It's not Yahweh. It's Yahoo. The short the, uh, nickname, if you can call it that. A shortened version of Yahoo. Wow. That's the name, the biblical name. This is why when people ask us, why do you believe that the name of God is Yahuwah? Because it's in the Bible, the biblical alphabet, the biblical meaning, and the biblical names of God's people contain Yahoo. Yahuwah is the name of the Father. That's why we believe. Do we believe because somebody else preached it first? No, it doesn't matter who preached it. Even if LNG White preached it, it doesn't matter. What matters is you look at the Bible. Is it true? If it's true, then believe it, hold on to it, because that's what matters the most. Now, you know, we are very happy because there are so many of our brothers and sisters who do believe and hold on to that name. And we have a sister who actually did a lot of research and we have a resident scholar with us. And she put together a scholarly work and put together an ebook, an ebook about the name of Yahuwah, about the archeological evidence Remember, we believe the name of God is Yahuwah because it's in the Bible. It's a biblical name. But there are also extra biblical evidences that point to Yahuwah as his name. And this is what this book is all about. These are the contents of that book. Very intriguing. Very scholarly done. And you will look at different extra biblical evidences of Yahuwah being the name of the Father. And we will make this book available to you, of course, free of charge, right? It's available for you to download soon, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps the following day, but it will be yours and you can share this book. And we're excited to share that with you, okay? All right, let's go to our last question. And this is it. Good day, 
Rudipo Kajan, my brother is telling me, again, you know, we're so happy because we have many of men, many who are joining us who are sharing our videos, sharing our Bible studies with their siblings and their friends and their loved ones. And they're having a lot of good conversations and a lot of good questions. And here's one, good day, Pokajan. My brother is telling me that the remnant, remnant mentioned in Revelation is still Israel. How do we answer it, Paul? So when we know, when we look at the book of Revelation, when was that written? Book of Revelation. <laughs> when was that written? Old Testament or New Testament? New Testament? It's New Testament. In fact, it's the last book of the Bible, right? It was written probably 90, 95 AD. So long after the, the passing or the, the ascension to heaven of Yahushua HaMashiach. So it was the last book of the Bible. And so to refer to the remnant mentioned in Revelation to be Israel, it's kind of going backward. Revelation is about the vision forward, right? It's about revelation of the future. And so the remnant mentioned in Revelation is not Israel. It is actually the church. And what's the proof? What specific passage are we discussing about here? In Revelation 12, verse 17, this is what it says. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the reservoir offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yahushua the Christ. Why do we believe the remnant mentioned in Revelation 12, 17, or the offspring mentioned in this translation? Why do we believe it refers to Yahushans? Not to Israel, because it mentions the testimony of Yahusha the Christ and that they keep the commandments of God. However, if this person doesn't believe that Revelation 12, 17 refers to Christians or Yahushins, then perhaps this person can convince you. This is a lesson that was taught by Brother Irani Manalo, September 26, 1999. And take a look at the, the explanation he gives in the lesson, okay? This is not for me, this is from Kaurdi. This is what he says, and it's a reference made to Revelation 12, 17, the verse that we just read. Explanation, the first century church of Christ had apostatized. It did not remain faithful to the teachings of God. The Bible mentions of the daughter of that church, and this is the church of Christ that emerged in the far east from the ends of the earth. This church, Church of Christ 1914, or Church of Christ that emerged in the Philippines in 1914, INC, is also referred to us as the offspring of the woman in a related prophecy. Revelation 12, 17. So according to Brother Ronnie Manalo, right? The woman refers to the church, but the offspring of that church refers to who? The third group refers to the Church of Christ called the INC, which emerged in 1914, right? And so it refers not to Israel, but to the church of Christ in these last days. However, there's something deeper I want you to realize in that passage. But I don't want to show it to you yet. Before I go there, we just want to share with you the following passage of Scripture. Isaiah 43, 5 to 6. And the reason why we want to share this passage with you is to point out the biblical truth that many of the prophecies in Isaiah pertaining to the church it has a more complete fulfillment later on. For example, Isaiah 43, 5 to 6. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. We know this passage well, and we know how this was fulfilled. 
how was this fulfilled? It was fulfilled with the Church of Christ's emergence in the Philippines in 1914. Why do we know that? Because it mentions the place. It mentions the time. It mentions the work. What is the work? To bring together the people of God, right? The sons and daughters of God, you see that? To bring together the sons and daughters of God. When will this be fulfilled? Ends of the earth, July 27, 1914. Where will it first begin or take place? In the Far East. The word East there is Misra, which means far east. And so when we look at all those clues, we put them together, we believe that this was fulfilled July 27, 1914, when the Church of Christ was caused to emerge in the Philippines and was registered in the government. July 27, 1914. Do we believe this? Absolutely. We believe this. We believe in this prophecy. However, there's even a more complete and more refined fulfillment of this prophecy. Did you know that? This was also taught by Brother Irano Gimanalo in the May 10, 1997 worship service by Kaerdi. What is another very important work which God designed for this commissioning and which took place only in 1997 or in 1996, I should say? Isaiah 43, 5. This was the passage we just read, Isaiah 43, 5. And now he's telling us there's a more complete fulfillment, another fulfillment. What is that? In, it, must, it also returns to its former home. It was fulfilled March 31st, 1996. And take a look at the note. The true church of Christ is the former home, Ephesians 2, 20 to 22. Therefore, the people of God will be returned to the true church since the first church after being apostatized and transformed into the Catholic church became the home of the devil. But is this the only home where God's people will be brought home? And then he mentions Psalms 132, 13 and 14 in the Living Bible. This was fulfilled when the executive minister went to Jerusalem to officially establish the Church of Christ in Jerusalem last March 31st, 1996. Do you see how the prophecies had multiple fulfillments? You see that? The first fulfillment, if you go back to Isaiah 4, 3, 5 to 6 in the New King James, when you read, sometimes when you change a translation of the prophecy, you gain new insight into the prophecy. In Isaiah 43, 5 in the New King James, what do you notice about the prophecy? It's about God's work of bringing people home. The home represents what? The church. But if you read the today's English version, it says, don't be afraid. I am with you from the distant east and the farthest west. I will bring your people home. In that case, the word home also referred to in Psalms 132. Oh Lord, you have chosen Jerusalem as your home. This is my permanent home. And so when look at the, looking at the TEV, there was additional insight provided by Brother Iranio Gimanao. What is that? The first fulfillment, the church will be, the, the people of God will be gathered to the house, which is the church, was fulfilled July 27, 1914. However, it will also be fulfilled in its literal home, which is where? Jerusalem. And this was in 1996. Sometimes when you change a translation, you get additional insight, right? And so when we keep that in mind, how there, there are several levels of fulfillment in prophecy, just like Isaiah 43, 5 to 6. And I believe this, not just because Brother Iranio Gimanala preached it, because it's the truth. We see the fulfillment of it, okay? However, let's go back to this prophecy 
in September 26, 1999. You notice that Brother Irani Manal, referring to Revelation 12, 17, it mentions the offspring of the woman. Who is the offspring of the woman? He said, it is this church. When he says this church, what is that? INT, Iglesia de Cristo. Do we believe that? Yeah. Let's go to the prophecy now, Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the offspring there is what again? INT. Do you see what I see? Do you see a more refined fulfillment of that prophecy? What do you see? If you look at it closely. The rest of her offspring. And so not only does it mention the offspring, but also the rest of the offspring. The offspring is often referred to as the seed of the woman. But there is the rest of the seed, the rest of her offspring. What could that be? Remember what we just looked at? When you change the translation, you get more insight. Let's take a look at Revelation 12, 17 in the King James Version. Take a look at this. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. The seed, what is that? The offspring. What is that? The Church of Christ. The Iglesia de Cristo of 1914. But there's a remnant a remnant of the offspring, a remnant of the third group. That's found in Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. This is why we're not surprised this is happening. All that's happening now, it was foretold by prophecy. And the truth is, brethren, we want to share with you, there are more prophecies fulfilled about the very small remnant then prophecies fulfilled about the emergence of the INC in 1914. Way more. And we will share that with you. And we're so excited to share that with you because it will lift up your faith. Brethren, we belong to the very small remnant of God's people in these last days. However, that also means that the dragon, you see that? The dragon or the devil is going to wage war against us. And so don't be surprised if you will be tested. You will be tested. All of us will. And so what do we need to do if we are being tested? Let's read one more passage. Revelation 3, 20 to 22. Here I am, Yahushua says. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I have overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Brethren, there's only one way for us to receive the promises of God. We have to overcome. Why does the Bible say we need to overcome? Because the devil is going to wage war against us and try to destroy us. And so we must not give up. We have to overcome. But how can we overcome by ourselves? We can't. This is why Yahushua says, I knock on the door. We have to let him in. We have to let in our life, Yahushua HaMashiach, let him lead us. Because without him, we'll be defeated. With him, just like what the Apostle Paul said, 
We can do everything by the strength of Christ. We need to be with our Messiah. God has been so, so gracious to us. May we not waste that grace. Let's use that grace so that we can complete our race. That is our lesson for today. Let's all stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father. Yes. Our gracious God, Yahuwah. We are truly honored to mention that name. Yes, Father. Although we are not worthy. Yes. It is your command, however, for your people to mention that name. Yes. Thank you for considering us worthy. Yes, Father. Yes. Thank you for revealing that name. Yes. By means of your spirit. Yes. That we were able to discern the difference between right and wrong. You gave us the courage to stand our ground. Yes. Though we were persecuted, we rejoiced. Yes. Because it meant that we are your bond servants. Yes. And we take pride in that. Yes. We want to be your bond servants forever. Amen. To belong to you always. Yes. And never to let go of you. Father, do not let go of us. Yes. Where shall we go to? Where shall we run? Yes. You are our God. May you embrace your people. Yes. Okay. Yes, as human beings, we get tested left and right. Yes. Okay. Sometimes we're overwhelmed by problems. Yes. We're not surprised by these events in our life. Yes. Because we know that the dragon will wage war against us. Yes. Father, we are no match against him. Yes. Okay. Help us. Help all of us. Yes. Especially now. He knows he has limited time left. Father, rescue and deliver us. Yes. Give us your spirit. Give us your strength. That we will have courage. That we will overcome fear. Yes. Father, please listen to our pleas. Every time we call to you, asking for your help. Yes. During times of worship, during personal prayers, Father, please yes. manifest yourself. Yes. And touch us in a special way yes. to strengthen each one of us. Amen. Lord Yahusha, thank you. For all of your guidance. Yes. We are your bond servants. Thank you for calling us your friends. Yes. Okay. When we think about that, we know we're not truly worthy. Yes. As a matter of fact, it's hard for us to accept that. Lord Yahusha, we are your bond servants. Yes. Okay. But if you consider us your friends, oh, how we rejoice. Yes. How we shout for joy. Yes. We are Yahushans. We follow you. Yes. No matter what happens in our life. Amen. Help us to endure. As you knock on the doors of our hearts. Yes. We let you in our life. Lead yes. us. Strengthen us. Please heal us of all of our infirmities. Amen. We believe, Father, that you have listened to our prayers. We ask and beg all things. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.